we're going to end up talking about the rebel Jesus. But before I ruin Christmas with that, let's, uh, <laughs> let's take a minute together uh, just to be still in this space, take a deep breath. <sighs> On our way up uh, to church today, we saw some serious road rage, so maybe that was you. I don't know, but I'm glad you're here uh, tonight. So if you close your eyes with me just for a second, just to breathe deep, let it out. come together into this space to be one here together. To invite this greater other that we call God more into our lives. To choose to be present to the presence that has invited us here. God, we see you as one who is known as love, who brings peace and joy. May it be so tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to walk you through the Christmas story according to Luke. Now, if you've been with me in classes before, you know that Luke and Matthew tell a slightly different story. Uh, Luke's story is there on purpose. Luke wants to tell us something, illusion after illusion about what's to come. So keep that in mind as we hear this text. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them. And the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for, they had heard, for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. 
So first, I want to say, uh, Lauren Razzler, who is one of our high school students here, uh, is an amazing, uh, gifted thespian uh, at Vintage, and she was supposed to read this for us tonight, but COVID is going through their family, so she was not able to be here, which is a real bummer. So say a prayer for the whole uh, Razzler clan, and they may even, may even be watching uh, right now. Um, so this story reminds me that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, what we're celebrating uh, tomorrow and tonight is a birthday the birthday of Jesus. And I think about our country, and we honor a few people uh, with days off for their birthday. Uh, in a couple of months, we're going to honor George Washington's birthday and remember him. Way to remember him and to rekindle our own memory about what he was about. Uh, you know, the leader of the Revolutionary Army, uh, first president of the United States. Around that same time, we're going to honor the birth of Abraham Lincoln, uh, who was famous for uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, leading us through the Civil Roar, War and into recovery from all that. And Martin Luther King, just a few weeks away, uh, the civil rights leader who wanted to make sure that there was more and more and more equality and equity for those who hadn't quite experienced the full aspiration of our founding documents. We celebrate these birthdays, and when we do, it's a moment to take rests, think about things, remember them, that we would reflect deeply on who we are and what we want to be as a people. And of course, Christmas is the celebration of Jesus. But you know, growing up, I don't ever remember uh, around the mid middle of February, when it was coming close to George Washington's birthday, I don't remember placing a plantation on our fireplace's mantle to celebrate <laughs> uh, where George Washington was born. And I, I don't remember uh, outdoors at church or anywhere else constructing a log, log cabin to represent Abraham Lincoln, uh, where he was born, into poverty, where he spent the first half of his life. And I don't remember ever uh, even knowing uh, to think about a two-story Queen Anne house in Atlanta uh, that brought Martin Luther King Jr. into the world. But I wonder if there's some connection between the birthplaces of these people and what they did with their lives. Is there a connection between how they began and the legacy that they went into? I wonder if there's a correlation between George Washington being born into wealth, uh, one of power and governance, and he was right there with the other founding fathers, seeing what was happening under the king, recognizing that it was more than taxation without representation. It was very bad government, so bad that they decided the ones who held the power in those colonies to do something about it. I wonder if it's because he was wealthy and born into wealth that he had the capacity to even know the depths of the problem. I wonder if growing up in a log cabin for Abraham Lincoln gave him empathy and understanding to people who worked their tails off just to get by. I wonder if it opened up his heart to a whole group of people in the South who weren't really allowed to live as human beings. And I wonder if growing up in that two-story Queen Anne house in Atlanta, I wonder if that's where Martin Luther King Jr. really saw the errors and the pain of segregation separate but equal, but not equal, and certainly not equitable. And I wonder if that's what stirred him uh, to step into his role as one who would seek to change those things. 
And so as we think tonight about the birth of Jesus, first I just want to note that these three characters in our country who get a day off pales in comparison to Jesus, who we give a whole month <laughs> to think about, to reflect on this story. And it's a story that Luke wanted to give us to point things out. I wonder what the connection is between the story of how Jesus was reportedly born and what he was born into and the significance of that and who he became as a man. What impact did that beginning have on his mission and vision for his life? Now, out of curiosity, uh, how many of you at some point in your life put together a little Koresh, a little nativity scene somewhere in your house or a church or something like that? All right, how many of you have ever received a card in the mail with a little nativity scene or something like that? Yep, celebrate this. Uh, I just want to tell you some things about that experience for, for Mary and Joseph. Except for what we're kind of celebrating in a romantic way tonight, and in a very deep, meaty way tonight, actually, if we kind of just back up and just look at the story a little bit, there's really nothing beautiful at all about this birth narrative. It's actually a terrible story. It's a terrible story. You've got this couple. She's about to give birth. They have to travel several days. She's on a donkey the whole way for days and days to get to Bethlehem. Uh, people must have figured out that they're not married yet, so they're a little uncomfortable with what's going on in the first century uh, with that. They're not sure what to do. So as they're knocking on doors in an area of the world that is known for its hospitality ethic, meaning if you see somebody in need, even if they're enemies, you open the door and you make space for them. That was a deep spiritual reality for people back then, as it is still today in that part of the world. And they go door to door to door, as the story goes, and nobody will let this pregnant woman into their house. This is horrible. This is not wonderful. And the best they could get was a stinky cave on the back of somebody's property, not the little log cabin thing that you made on your mantle that didn't actually happen, but a little cave where there wasn't good airflow, where it smelled like everything that was supposed to come out of a cow did and stayed on the floor, <laughs> along with whatever was happening with the sheep and the goats, and that's the best it could be. It was awful, it was stinky, it was filthy, it was unholy. And what is the first bed for this uh, little baby? A manger, a feeding trough. That's not romantic at all. That's a horror story, right? I'm going to kind of give you a, a corollary here. How many of you have ever had the pleasure of driving I-5 south or north during a holiday weekend? It's a fun experience, isn't it? Uh, we made the terrible mistake of the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We decided to head down to Southern California to hit Disneyland for a few days and enjoy the, the holiday stuff. That's the last time we are ever going to travel <laughs> on the Sunday after Thanksgiving because if you've ever done that, you know what those rest areas are looking like when tens and tens of thousands of people have to stop. And it looks like it. Can you imagine receiving a, a Christmas card in the mail where your family <laughs> is in one of those stainless steel stalls where all manner of filth is on the floor and clearly there's no toilet paper because it's on the floor, right? And, that's, and underneath it says, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Can you imagine such a thing? 
That's what we're talking about here. It was a horrible scene. So the next time you're on I-5 in the rest area and it's awful, or the next time you have to go into a truck stop and use their bathroom, which is a close second to the first one, I just want you to think Merry Christmas <laughs> for all kinds of reasons because that was the experience for Mary and Joseph. Horrible. And yet we romanticize it. We put a little halo over it and call it wonderful and beautiful. We sweeten it up. But it wasn't sweet. Why is Luke giving this to us? What does that story, uh, what is it trying to convey? What is the meaning of the story, regardless of the veracity of the details? What is Luke trying to tell us? He's given us a hint that the one that is behind all this, that God is up to something, and this beginning is going to have something to do with where this guy's going with his life. He's starting in abject poverty. He's starting in humiliation. He's starting in an unholy place where nobody would want to begin. He's starting with everything stacked against him so that you and I, when we would look at this story and we find ourselves at the bottom of our own personal barrels, when we feel like whatever state of our lives is, is unholy, maybe filthy for things we've done or people have done to us, when we feel like we have been treated terribly by others, when we look at the Christmas story and realize that what Luke is trying to say is that that's where God chose to enter in, to inhabit that space with them, to be with them, that there's hope for us too. Because that's something about God's character, that when we're in those places, we're not alone. Sometimes in our society, we believe that God blesses the wealthy and, and the popular because that's just how humanity has always thought because it must certainly be the blessing of God. But what this story says is that that story is nonsense. That when God views humanity, God actually turns the table. And God actually is more present to those who are brokenhearted than those who have it all together. Now, I don't know if God cares more about the brokenhearted than those who have it all together, but here's what I can tell you, is that the brokenhearted know they don't have it all together, and they're much more likely to seek out some greater other. And they find, just as we see in the manger, that God was present there. Well, this beginning uh, just very naturally resulted in things that transpired in Jesus' life. So what did Jesus end up doing with his adult life? You know, after he lived most of his life, his last three years, what was he doing? He was saying, hey, I've experienced God and this God that we're talking about. He's coming from the Jewish tradition and he's reframing scripture and teaching things different than what had been taught from Jerusalem. And he, he takes his tack, he lives his life differently, all to say this, that the God who started with me in the manger in that filthy, unholy place is with everybody, with all of us, with all of you, no matter who you are. So that wherever you go, you know God is with you. This got him in great trouble because everybody back then, just as today and seems like forever, thought that if you're really blessed by God, then you must be in Jerusalem and you must be at the top of the heap. But here's this guy who has this power working through him to do crazy stuff, to have insights that he shouldn't have, to say just the opposite. That God is something, somebody bigger than us that is with all of us, no matter what. It's like gravity. 
It's just there. It's the air that we breathe. It's just there. And it is the love and the grace and the spirit of God for prostitutes, for tax collectors, for lepers, all of whom were cast out, and regular, everyday, ordinary people, regardless of the label on your clothes or the zip, clo zip code of your home. This is Jesus. What happened at the beginning was reflected as he went through his life. There's a scholar named Pete Enns. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He uh, was a biblical scholar, is a biblical scholar, and was a professor at a seminary. He was sort of the poster child for this seminary uh, until he started to kind of do a Jesus thing. He started in his scholarship to recognize that there were some problems in the way that people were thinking about ancient scriptures, and he started talking about these things. And eventually, just talking about such powerful questions got him fired. Well, he's written many books. He's doing okay, as far as I can tell. But he tells a story about a quote that he heard. So uh, from Pete Enns, biblical scholar, he remembers this. John Dominic Crossan, who's another guy who uh, got in a lot of trouble just for being academic and scholarly about what he was seeing and talking. John Dominic Crossan said, if you took someone who knew nothing of Jesus, but did understand the religious political powder keg of the first century Palestine, understood the tensions between various Jewish groups with different ideas about God and how to live in their own land under Roman rule, and tensions between Jewish and Greco-Roman customs, now centuries old, and then handed that person the Gospel of Mark, that person wouldn't have to read much before asking, who is this Jesus and when is he going to be killed? Because he was a rebel. Pete Enns goes on to say, I like being reminded of this rebel Jesus, the one Jackson Brown wrote about, the rock star. I want to forget the Jesus who behaves, who looks like he would fit right in at church, who acts as expected, colors between the lines, and never wanders off the beach blanket. And remember instead the rebel Jesus, the countercultural, sometimes snarky, sometimes funny, uncompromisingly in your face against hypocritical gatekeepers, uber-compassionate toward outsiders, challenger of the status quo, total mensch Jesus. That's where I'd rather be this Christmas because it's that Jesus, that man Jesus, that started in the stable Jesus. Because he started in the stable Jesus, perhaps, is why he ended up being that man Jesus that we're here tonight to celebrate the birthday of. And so before we sing Silent Night and O Holy Night, I thought it would be good for us to hear a little Jackson Brown. So uh, enjoy the song called The Rebel Jesus. Tables giving thanks for God's graces. 
Would you pray with me? I recognize that we are all at different places in our journey uh, in this room tonight. And I recognize that um, there are some here tonight that 
I'm not even sure if this God thing is anything or just something that we make up, and that's totally cool. But I can tell you uh, that reflecting on who this guy was and what he brought into the world makes a difference to the world. And it makes a difference to the lives of the people in the world, and it makes a difference to our lives right here and now. Because it reminds us to look at things in a different way. And so, God, you who are beyond our capacity to fully understand or name or define as hard as we may try, shape our eyes as need be to remember that this Jesus that we celebrate at birth was a rebel that had a mission in mind, not to be a Hallmark movie, but to, to call to account systems that were oppressive, to tell the people who were oppressed that they were deeply loved and valued. May this reality change our vision that we would see everyone with such eyes of grace. And God, you who dared to come into the stable, into that unholy, filthy, stinky place and show up in some way that Luke wanted us to think about, may we, who might even today, tonight, find ourselves in such a mess, know that we are not alone but you are with us to give us hope, peace, joy, love every day to get us through for the rest of our lives and beyond. May it be so. Amen.